Hi guys, and thanks for tuning in to God Besotted. It's Karina here, and we're continuing our series on the attributes of God with God's omnipotence. All our hope as believers rests on the confidence that our God can do all things. All that he promises to do in his goodness and his wisdom, he is able to carry out. That's what God's omnipotence means. So when God promises that he will be our God and we will be his people, when he says that we'll enjoy being in his presence forever, when we put our faith in his son who defeated death through the cross and resurrection, or his son who will raise us up with him in the last day and will rule with him, the promise is that until then we're secure in him and will be sanctified by the power of his spirit in us, all these amazing promises and more all rest on a foundation of God's omnipotence. In fact, scripture says that God can do even above and beyond all the that we could ask or imagine through his power which works within us if we're in Christ. I hope it's going to be an encouraging episode. I think it will be. So with that, let's just get right into it. Well, with COVID and the pandemic and movie theaters closing and social distancing, no doubt the movie industry has changed a lot over the past two, three years. But something that does not seem to have been affected is our culture's longstanding obsession with superhero movies. I've lost track, personally, of how many superheroes we have in these different multiverses or metaverses or whatever it's called nowadays, and I've long since fallen behind on these superhero movies. I think the last Avengers movie I saw was the first one that came out, and so as superhero after superhero takes on the big screen, it makes you wonder why exactly other than their cool outfits, is our culture so focused on these superhuman individuals? What is so alluring about a person or a creature who has special powers and can rescue people in some grand battle of good versus evil? Personally, I think this preoccupation with the super, with the supernatural and the superhuman is an indication of how God has set eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3 puts it that way, that God has set eternity in our hearts, meaning God has placed in us this innate longing for more, for something outside of ourselves, and that something or someone is him. We want someone to rescue us. We want someone to look up to. We want to have this bat signal, if you will, ready that we know when we light it up will bring the help that we so desperately need. Scripture tells us that there is a vast distinction, an unbridgeable chasm between creatures, including humanity, including us, and the Creator. And one of the things that separates creatures from Creator is power. We, as creatures, Created beings are finite. Our power is limited, but God's, God's is not. God is what theologians call omnipotent, which comes from two Latin words which, when put together, mean all-powerful. God's omnipotence, or his power, is essential to who he is. Even God's revelation of himself to Moses, which we've talked about in previous episodes, when God reveals himself to Moses as the great I am, or I am what I am, I will be what I will be, even this revelation implies his power. We've established in previous episodes that God is self-existent. It means he has life in himself. He simply is without any help from anyone or anything. And so as A.W. Tozer puts it, God, the self-existent creator, is the source of all the power there is. 
And since a source must at least be equal to anything that emanates from it, God is of necessity equal to all the power there is. And this is to say that he is omnipotent. So we're going to dive into this attribute of God in sort of three points. And we're going to see, I hope, how encouraging the knowledge that our God is omnipotent is for us as believers. So with that in mind, we're going to look at the first thing, which is what God can and can't do. So as we have in the past, we'll start with Wayne Grudem's definition from his systematic theology of God's omnipotence. And he puts it this way, God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. Now, that definition might surprise you, so let's unpack it a bit. First things first, we've said that God can do all things, and Scripture does affirm this over and over again. God's power to do whatever he decides to do is mentioned often in the Bible. For example, in Luke 1.37, the angel Gabriel, when he visits Mary, the mother of Jesus, says to her, "'With God nothing will be impossible.'" And Jesus later affirms on the positive side to his disciples, with God, all things are possible. So nothing is impossible to God. Indeed, all things are possible to him. And the word omnipotent, which we've mentioned means all power, sort of implies this. Another synonym for the word omnipotent would be the word almighty, all power, all might. And in the Bible, that word almighty is never used of anyone but God. For example, in Revelation 1.8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And we learn that in the new heavens and the new earth, in Revelation 21, there is no temple because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So God's power, his all power, is intrinsic to who he is. Job 11.7 says, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? The question, obviously, is rhetorical, and the answer is no. There is no way to discover the limits of the Almighty because God's power, like Him, is infinite. It knows no limit. Tozer puts it this way, God has power. Since God is also infinite, whatever He has must be without limit. Therefore, God has limitless power. He is omnipotent. Habakkuk writes a song in chapter 3 of the book bearing his name, and he says, God's radiance is like the sunlight. He is rays flashing from his hands, and there is the hiding of his power. In this passage, Habakkuk is recalling magnificent theophanies of God that are recorded in scripture. Moments when God has revealed himself visibly, such as at Mount Sinai, when he descended on the mountain before Israel in thunder and smoke. And Habakkuk says that even such a theophany, even such a revelation of glory, where God's radiance was like the sunlight and he had rays or lightning flashing from his hand, Habakkuk calls this the hiding of God's power. There is the hiding of his power, he says. What he's saying is that even such an incredible depiction of the power of God, a depiction which caused all of Israel to quake with fear and fall on their faces, even this is a veiled representation of God's power. There's more. There's so much more. His power is infinite. He can do all things, even things that he chooses not to do. 
For instance, when Jesus confronts the Pharisees on his way into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he says that if these are silent, that is, if the people crying out that he's the son of David were to fall silent, then Jesus says God would make the stones cry out. Or when God talks to Moses and he's angry that Israel continually sins against him, he says he is able to make out of Moses a great nation. God is able to do all things, even things that he chooses not to do. God's power is so associated with who he is that 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, to be away from the presence of God is to be away from his power. It says, these, meaning those who reject Christ, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Stephen Charnock, a theologian, puts it this way, as holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, his threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. So, Scripture affirms that God can do all things. But Wayne Grudem's definition, and the intro to our point, what God can and can't do, says that God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. So, are there things that God can't do? Scripture is clear that there are. There are things that God can't do, such as tell a lie. Scripture says that God is non-lying. He is not able to lie. Scripture also says that God can't sin and he can't tempt people to sin in James 1. In other words, God cannot violate his holy character in any way. He can't, for example, commit suicide. He cannot not exist. God can't do things that are illogical, such as make a square circle. And he can't create a rock so big that he can't lift it, because not only would that be nonsensical, but it would be impossible. God has all power. He can do all things that are in accordance with his holy will. So a Puritan writer puts it this way, all things but lying, dying, and denying himself are possible to God. So we've looked at what God can and can't do. Now we'll look at what God has done and will do. God, in addition to being all-powerful, is sovereign. And God's sovereignty and his omnipotence are closely related, so much so that many theologians in their systematic theologies treat the two together or very close together. So God's omnipotence is his ability to do all that he decides to do, and his sovereignty is his exercise of rule over his creation. So as Tozer puts it, sovereignty and omnipotence must go together. To reign, God must have power, and to reign sovereignly, he must have all power. The king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, puts the two together in Second Chronicles 20, verses 5 through 7. He stands in front of the assembly of Judah, and he says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. God, through his power, rules over all creation, and God can, by his power, execute all his holy will. 
So omnipotence and sovereignty go together. Job puts them together also. After God reveals himself to Job in a whirlwind and challenges Job's wrong assumptions about him, Job admits, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So let's look at some things that God has done and will do through his power, ways that he exercises his sovereignty in the world. First, things he has done, he created by his power. Scripture reveals to us a God whose very word has tremendous power. An entire galaxy sprung into existence ex nihilo, from nothing, by God's word. Jeremiah 10, 12, a passage we looked at last week says, It is God who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. Romans 1 says, Creation is what testifies to God's existence. Paul says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, people should look at creation and see a powerful, eternal God, a creator, clearly. They should seek this God and worship him, but as Paul goes on to say, they don't. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Again, we see the connection between God's will and his power. Everything that God wills, he does, and everything he has decreed, he will perform. God's omnipotence and God's sovereignty are linked. It is through his power that God is able to execute his plan, able to exercise his rule over his creation. One of the plans, of course, that God is executing and has begun to execute through his power is his plan to redeem humanity and the entire world, his plan of redemption. Starting all the way back in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, verse 15, God announces a plan to redeem humanity through the seed of a woman, that is, through a human. And this is a prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who would uh, accomplish redemption for God's people. And yet before that moment, before the fullness of time came, when that one man, Jesus, would enter the world, God chose to execute his divine plan through another man, and his name was Abraham. As you no doubt know, Abraham was an old man with an aging, barren wife. And God revealed himself to Abraham and promised to make him a great nation. Through your descendants, God says, I'll bless all the families of the earth. This is a promise of the coming redemption. That's in Genesis 12. But there's one problem at that point. Abraham had no descendants. He's childless and he's old. By the time we get to Genesis 17, God appears to Abraham again, having already entered into a covenant with him in Genesis 15. And God declares, I am God Almighty. Recognize that language. God is declaring his omnipotence. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. God had entered a covenant with Abraham and he'd promised these descendants that would be as numerous as the sand and as the stars. But Abraham at this point is getting confused. How is this going to come about? It's not until Genesis 18 that God reveals this child is going to come not only from Abraham's body, but from the body of Sarah, his barren wife. And so both Abraham and Sarah, when they receive this news, laugh incredulously at God's pronouncement. 
How could that happen when the both of them were so old? And God's reply is, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Literally, in the Hebrew, this is, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? The word wonderful is a miracle term. God is saying that he can do anything to accomplish his plan, and he will do whatever he decides to do with ease, because he is God Almighty, and nothing is too difficult for him. In Jeremiah 32, there's a long section where Jeremiah is dialoguing with God about the future of God's people, and they're in exile, and the future seems bleak, and Jeremiah Jeremiah tells God, nothing is too hard for you. And in response to Jeremiah's request to know how will God continue to provide for his people, God reiterates Jeremiah's statement and affirms it and says, nothing is too hard for me. In other words, even when the future seems bleak, even when God's people are in exile, even when God's people reject him, creating a bright future for his people that will accomplish his plans for welfare and not for calamity for them, for a future and a hope for them, despite their sin, creating this is not too difficult for the Lord. The one who is able to create the universe with a word is able also to carry out his plans for good on behalf of his people. There is nothing maybe more encouraging than knowing that God is always working to accomplish his good purposes for us. And this working is not done in a frenzy. Nothing is difficult for him. He can do anything and everything he sets his mind to do. Another thing that God has done in his omnipotence is resurrected his son, Jesus. We've said that God initiated this plan of redemption through Abraham, through the people of Israel, to bless all the families of the earth. And of course, this plan culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, accomplished God's plan for salvation, offered redemption to God's people. In Mark 12, Jesus, before he has been resurrected, he gets into this argument with the Sadducees who believed that there was no resurrection. This was a group of religious um, people who had decided that resurrection was not biblical, that there was no such thing. And Jesus, in response to them, offering up this um, silly scenario to him to try to trap him, Jesus replies, don't you understand the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus is saying that already in the Bible, people had been resurrected by the power of God. And indeed, the power of God is perhaps not ever more clear than through his power to raise the dead. God has life in himself, and as such, he has power over the life of every human being. In Romans 1.4, Paul says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. And in Philippians 3.10, Paul says he wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Scripture says in Hebrews that God, through Jesus' resurrection, rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And so through his resurrection, Jesus was demonstrated to have the power of an indestructible life. God can do anything, including raise people from the dead. Now, now that we've looked at a few of the things that God can do and has done, well, let's look at some of the things that God promises to do, things that he will do. 
do. One of those things that's so encouraging for us as believers is that God has not only raised Jesus from the dead, but he's also promised that he will raise every believer from the dead who has put their faith in Jesus. Paul in Philippians 3.21 says Jesus will give believers glorified bodies, resurrected bodies, with the power he has to subject all things to himself. So by raising Jesus from the dead with his omnipotent power, God has begun to subject all things to Jesus's authority and will one day subject all things to him completely. Jesus, after he had been resurrected, declares to the disciples, all authority has been given to me in Matthew 28. The King James Version puts it, all power, all power has been given to me. In Ephesians 1, we read that God exalted Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And 1 Peter 3:22 says Jesus is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And so one of the things that God will do through his omnipotence is rule over all things through Jesus. There has begun a process of subjection to Jesus. All things are being put under his feet. Every enemy is being subjected to his rule and will be fully and finally subjected to his rule when he returns to earth and sets up his kingdom. This is why Paul can say in such few and yet profound words in 1 Corinthians 1, which we looked at last week, Christ is the power of God. Hebrews 1 affirms that Christ is upholding all things by the word of his power. God's omnipotence is exercised, his sovereignty, his rule over creation is exercised through Jesus, to whom he has given all power and all rule and all authority and all dominion. This brings us to an important question about how God's power is related to the problem of evil and God's divine providence. If God has all power, why doesn't he eradicate sin and suffering? How can a loving God who's working in the world to accomplish good, how can he really love us if he allows such awful things to happen? The presence of sin and suffering in the world causes us to ask the question, either God is not powerful enough to stop evil, or he doesn't care enough to. A lot of people cannot find a harmony between this apparent contradiction that a powerful God who loves his creation could allow the presence of sin and suffering to continue in the world. At least two different answers or approaches have been taken historically to this apparent contradiction. One of them is very old and one is more recent. The first is deism. Deism views God as aloof, as having created the world as a master clockmaker, but he now stands nonchalantly outside his creation, never interfering into the affairs of man, not personally involved with his creation. And so the answer to the dilemma is there is suffering in the world, not because God is powerless to stop it, but because he doesn't care enough to. On the other hand, process theology views God as omnipotent, as all-powerful, but his omnipotence is not coercive. That is, he can't infringe upon the free will of man. 
process theology sees God as a God who does care very deeply about his creation and hates to watch people suffer, but who is limited in how he can respond to their pain because he can't step on humans' toes. He can't force them to act in any given way. But neither of these answers, deism or process theology, are satisfactory. That is, neither of them are biblical solutions to the problem of evil, as it's so-called. Scripture presents us with a much more complex picture, a picture of a God who is powerful enough to defeat evil and does care enough to do so. A God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, even when we don't understand how. For the purposes of this episode, what we have to affirm is that God can do anything he wants to do, including create the world out of nothing and call a people to himself. He can do all things and no purpose of his can be thwarted. The Bible gives us ample confidence, ample evidence that his purposes are good and he is able to carry them out and therefore we can trust him. Daniel Aiken, a Baptist theologian, says it much better than me. He says, The Bible spends little time answering the whys and wherefores of life. Rather, it tells us in Deuteronomy that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. What we can know for sure is that the God who used the innocent, shameful, despicable suffering of his own son to reconcile the world unto himself is able to take the shards and broken fragments of our own lives and piece them together in a mosaic of beauty and wonder. The God who neither slumbers nor sleeps will see us through the darkest night and bring us safe at last to that blessed place where we will need neither lamp nor light of sun. God himself will be our radiance. Indeed, what scripture tells us is that God stays his wrath and his power, his almighty power to judge evil, out of compassion and patience. Scripture says he wants all to come to repentance. That is his desire, even though he knows that some will never come. Romans 9.22 says it this way, What if God, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God is willing to make his power known against sin, and scripture tells us that he will one day judge for sin. Yet he endures with patience because he is wanting and waiting for people to come to repentance. In Job, Elihu, Job's friend, says that God's power to judge evil is checked by his goodness and his righteousness. Elihu says, out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. God, although he is exalted in power, although he is called the Almighty, he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. God's purposes are good, even when we don't understand the secret ways he brings them about. Charles Spurgeon has famously said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. 
So then we've covered that God can do all things that are in accordance with his holy character. And he has done and will do many things through his omnipotence, including create and redeem the world, raise Jesus from the dead, raise believers' bodies in the last day, and rule over all through Jesus' eternal kingdom. Finally, our third point, we'll see that God works in us and through us by his power. God's power is, I would say, a communicable attribute. It's an attribute that we share with him being made in the image of God. We can't be all powerful, of course, but God does give us a measure of power as humans, and he gives us divine power by his spirit when we are in Christ. God saves us by his power. Scripture says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. God in his omnipotence draws people who otherwise would not come to him. We covered Romans 1, which says that people choose instead of acknowledging the creator, although his attributes and his power is clearly seen in the creation, people choose not to acknowledge God as creator and not to come to him. But God, through his power, is able to save people through the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. The passage we mentioned when Jesus says, with God all things are possible, is in the context of salvation. In that passage, he tells his disciples that anyone can be saved through God's power no matter how impossible it might seem. God also secures us or keeps us in the faith by his power. Scripture says in 1 Peter 1, 5, that we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation. And so God keeps us and we keep ourselves in the love of God by God's power and through faith. And finally, God also sanctifies us by his power. Paul says in Colossians 1.29 that he labors, he strives for the purpose of edifying other believers. He wants to build other believers up in the faith. And he says he does this striving according to God's power, which mightily works within me. Again, we see the tension between Paul's striving and God's power. There's a both and in scripture when it comes to how we grow in holiness. We strive, and yet the Spirit strives within us. Interestingly, or perhaps not interestingly, in Scripture we see that God's power is made available to us only only when we recognize our weakness. In Isaiah 40, we read about a God who never gets tired, who never grows weary. And it says in that passage that this God who has an unlimited store of energy and power, it says to him who lacks might, God increases power. God, out of his unlimited energy and strength, is able to provide strength for us when we lack might, when we are weak. Paul prays several times in his epistles, uh, for example, in Colossians and Ephesians, he prays for the believers he's discipling to be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit. But note what he does. He prays for it. He doesn't tell them to work up the power within themselves. He doesn't tell them to exercise the power that lies within them. He prays for them to be strengthened with power from on high, strengthened with power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we have not because we ask not. It requires prayer. It requires humbling ourselves and expressing dependence on God through prayer and asking for the strength that we lack 
for us to receive that strength. I've said it before on the podcast, we should be relying on the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. If we can get through our entire day without asking for God's intervention, for God's strength, there's a problem. At that point, we are relying and operating in our own strength. In God's economy, recognizing our weaknesses does not leave us vulnerable. It doesn't open us up for humiliation. Instead, it strengthens us because God meets our need with his unlimited strength. Jesus, in the Gospels, gave his apostles the authority and the power to heal the sick and to preach. But when his disciples tried to exercise a demon at one point and couldn't, Jesus told them this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays for believers to have the eyes of their hearts opened to understand what is the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. As believers, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, of fear, but of power and love and discipline. And after Jesus was resurrected and before he ascended to heaven, he told the disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he said, and you will be my witnesses. The work we are called to do on a daily basis as witnesses of Christ, as disciples of Christ, as his representatives on earth and his ambassadors, this work cannot be accomplished apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And if and when we feel ill-equipped to do this work, when we feel weak, Scripture says that, that is when we are strong. Because that's when Christ's strength is abundantly supplied to us. That is when we can reach out to Christ in prayer and receive abundant power for the work before us. So the question is, as we close, how are we seeing God's supernatural power, his omnipotence at work in our lives? The power to forgive, the power to do good without recognition, the power to fight sin instead of indulge it, the power to witness boldly in our workplaces, the power to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow Christ instead of the culture of the world, all of this comes from the Holy Spirit. We are helpless on our own. I know that I want to see God's power at work in my life in a greater way. I want to see his, his power in me making me more like Jesus and working through me beyond anything that I could ask or imagine. And the amazing promise of scripture is that that power is mine. I need only ask for it. Thanks for listening to this episode of God Besotted. If it encouraged you, share it with someone or rate it on Spotify and Apple or leave a review on Apple or whatever you feel led to do. Make sure you follow on Instagram, all those good things. I will talk to you next week. We'll be talking about the faithfulness of God and I think it's going to be a good time. So make sure you tune in then.